Have you ever had a dream where, I mean, in the dream, you were literally terrified where you couldn't even move. You're just kind of frozen. You know you need to run, but you can't. Ever have a dream like that? Just me? Are you, okay, you've had one. All right. That's what Abram is having here. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Revelation and having looked at six judgments that are revealed by Jesus to the Apostle John in chapter 6, we see a break in the action in chapter 7, and we are introduced to 144,000 individuals representing all the tribes of Israel. Pastor Carl last week began explaining the importance of these 144,000 because their presence here affirms the fact that Israel plays a significant role in end-time events. This is contrary to what a number of denominations are teaching in what is called replacement theology, and that rather than the Jews being the chosen people following the resurrection, the church, or the body of Christ, are the chosen people of God. Today we'll see that nothing could be further from the truth. And not only is this view, which was ascribed to by theologians like Calvin and Luther, wrong, it is dangerous because it fosters anti-Semitism. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he goes back to Genesis chapter 15 and looks at the covenant God makes with Abraham, formerly known as Abram, which is a perpetual promise of favor to Abraham and all of his descendants. Every commentary that Calvin ever wrote, I have. And he has a commentary on every book of the Bible except one, Revelation. Because he didn't know what to do with it. He was all balled up in his view of Israel. So here's Abram, and God is promising him this land so that his descendants can enjoy it. But there's one big problem. Verses 19 to 21 of this chapter indicate there's 10 pagan nations in it. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, the Mosquitobite. You know, they're all there. And then Abram asks an honest question in verse 8. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? By the way, this is not a sign of unbelief. He's asking for some assurance. In verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, he is confident that God would give him the land that he promised. The problem is, is it's overrun by pagan nations. And so he asks a very important question. Oh God, I want to know. Tell me the specifics. And so God understands that Abram is not questioning the integrity of God's word when he asks, oh Lord, how may I know that I may possess it? And so God answers with a visual aid. Look at verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now in ancient days when you wanted to make a serious contract far beyond just a handshake, you did what they called you cut a covenant with another person. And so here's Abram, and he severs in half a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, and the smaller fowl he puts on either side, the two birds. And what it meant in that day is that after the pieces were laid, each party would walk between the dead animals. And you, in essence, were saying, if I do not do the promise that I am making you to you today, may God do to me what we've done to these animals. 
That's the seriousness of it. Verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram uh, drove them away. Uh, he's battling these vultures all day long. No doubt a picture of what God is going to do in terms of Israel battling their opponents. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Have you ever had a dream where, I mean, in the dream you were literally terrified where you couldn't even move, you're just kind of frozen? You know you need to run, but you can't. Ever have a dream like that? Just me? Oh, you, okay, you've had one. All right. That's what Abram is having here. God said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. You talk about prophecy. You talk about the veracity of God's word. God makes this prophecy before there's any people yet called Hebrews. He hasn't had the first son yet. So God is saying, Abram, I want you to know that there's going to be a time amongst your descendants' history where for 400 years they are going to suffer under oppression. Verse 14, furthermore, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Most of you know what he's referring to if you know your Bible. Just as God said, not by accident, for 400 years they're down in Egypt and they leave with great plunder and spoil. As for you, and I'm sure he's thinking, look, if this is the fate of my descendants, what's my fate? So God tells him, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. You can read Genesis 25 for details. Abram lives to 175 years of age. The Bible says he breathed his last. He died at a ripe old age, satisfied with life and gathered to his people. Verse 16, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now the Amorite are the people who are dominating the promised land. And here's God because God is a patient God, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And he waits 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 400 years for these people to repent. And if you've read your Bible, you know what an evil, wicked, beyond description some of the things that they did. So when God sends Israel in, he says, wipe them out. That was an expression of the mercy of God Almighty because of the viciousness of these people. But there came a point where God said, 400 years is up, enough is enough. And so he releases Israel and they ultimately go into the promised land. By the way, don't ever underestimate the patience of God. Some of you know people who seem so obstinate towards God, but he is so long-suffering. But neither should you overestimate his patience because there can come a day where God's dam of mercy breaks to his wrath and it's too late forever for an individual. Now look at verse 17. God will care for Abram's descendants. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God appears to him. And this idea of a smoking oven and a flaming torch are symbols of God elsewhere in Scripture. But normally when you cut a covenant, one person would walk through 
affirming his commitment to the covenant. And then a second person would walk through affirming their commitment to the covenant. But Abraham is asleep. Only God walks between the pieces. Why? Because this is an unconditional covenant. It has nothing to do with Abraham. It has nothing to do with the faithfulness of the Jewish people. It has everything to do with God Almighty. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. It's a done deal. It's a settled matter in the mind of God. Now again, you hear all the time this fussing and feuding and fighting over the boundaries of Israel. And we will hear it again this week concerning the city of Jerusalem. But listen, God gave Jerusalem to the Hebrew people. All of that property, it is theirs. And the only reason I think that God has been compassionate towards America, because we've led the world in evil. We're leading, leading the world in homosexuality and convincing other nations they need to follow our example. We were the first nation to legalize abortion. Roe v. Wade, prior to that year, we had 28,000 abortions. Back room, back alley abortions. The year later, we had over a million and there are 60 million Americans who are missing. Forget Americans now that other cultures have adopted it. Some will say there's somewhere between 400 and 500 million people across the planet who are missing because of abortion. Why God hasn't smushed us as a nation is beyond me. But I think the only reason he hasn't is because we are one of the few nations who have stood behind Israel. And what has fueled that in our politicians' thinking? Evangelical, born-again Christians. But now the evangelical church is abandoning Israel, saying we are the new Israel. And that is dangerous theology. And when America no longer stands with Israel, we are in big trouble because Genesis 12, 3 still applies today. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so today, for the most part, the Jewish people are in unbelief. Most Hebrew people on this world are secularized, with the exception of a handful. But I want to tell you, God has not abandoned Israel. As he said through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you. With an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. And so think about this, especially even as it applies to us and the integrity of God's word. When Paul says at the, at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do you know? He illustrates with Israel in 9, 10, and 11. It's not some parenthesis in the book of Romans. It's a continuation of his argument. In Romans 9, God elected Israel out of all the nations of the world. In Romans 10, he deals with their current state that they are in unbelief, that they have not received the Lord. They did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. But then in Romans 11, he will look at their future restoration. Why are they in unbelief today? Listen to Romans 10 and verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And by the way, that's the same reason most Gentiles are lost. They think that their righteousness and the things they've accomplished and the good that they've done over the bad they've done somehow will secure for them a place in heaven. That was the Jew in Jesus' day. 
They thought they had a righteousness that would make them acceptable to God. And that's why they rejected Yeshua as the Savior. But did God abandon Israel? He elected them in the past. They're in unbelief in the present. But in the future, he will restore them. And so chapter 11 opens with these words. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're reading a portion of Scripture that deals with Jewish people. Go back to Revelation 7 here in verse 4. We read, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, who are these 144,000? Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, said it represented their denomination. The problem is there came a time among Seventh-day Adventists where they far surpassed 144,000, and so they had to kind of change their terminology on it. Um, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness, by the way, and Seventh-day Adventists came out of the same source, the same group. Uh, they taught that only 144,000 people could ever be saved. Well, my, that was an attractive message to some, and they wanted to be in that 144,000, so they became Jehovah's Witness. There became a problem, though, with time, and that they far outgrew the 144,000. So they changed their doctrine, and they used the verse out of context in order to sustain their false teaching. They used John 10, 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so this slide illustrates how they handle the problem. They say there are two classes of saved people amongst Jehovah's Witness. There's the anointed class, the 144,000, and then there are the other sheep, and they have two different destinies. The next slide shows the anointed class is made up of the 144,000, which, by the way, they changed their doctrine, and in 1935, they said that number is closed off. So since 1935, you cannot be a member of the 144,000. But you can be some of those other sheep. And so as the next slide shows, the other sheep refer to other Jehovah's Witnesses who unlike the 144,000 will rule and reign with Jesus in heaven, the rest of the JWs, they will live on a paradise here upon the earth. Look, whatever cult wants to use Romans 7 in verse 4 to apply to their group, they have missed the plain teaching of Scripture. It says here in Revelation 7, 4, that these people are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Furthermore, the Apostle John spends the next four verses delineating those tribes, beginning in verse 5, from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000, and so on. By the way, verses 5 through 8, when you read it, it is an absolute death blow to that false doctrine that the 10 tribes of Israel are lost. You ever hear about the lost tribes of Israel? You know where that comes from? It comes from a British teaching. There were some Christians in Britain who said that the 12 tribes of Israel migrated all the way to Great Britain and that it is white Anglo-Saxon people who are now Jewish people and by uh, extension, the Brits who came to this country, Americans as well. It is a racist, anti-Semitic doctrine. And so if you study the 12 tribes, remember they were all united at one point. They split 10 in the north, two in the south, Benjamin and Judah. 
the two southern tribes. The southern kingdom was named after the larger of the two, namely Judah. The ten northern tribes were, for the most part, from that point on, called Israel. And so um, they say that these ten tribes that were carried away by the Assyrians were eventually lost and that they migrated to Great Britain, and that the white Anglo-Saxon people of Britain and in America make up those 10 tribes. And so if you go to England today, here's a picture. This is supposedly Jacob's pillow. Remember Jacob? In Genesis chapter 28, he was so tired, he laid his head on a pillow. They say, this is the rock. And every king since Henry VIII, we can document had the crown carried out, including Queen Elizabeth in 1953, the last time the stone was taken out. And they say, wear it. It's called British Israelism. And so sometimes you will read about books, Great Britain and the United States in Prophecy, and it goes back to this time. Well, let me tell you, first of all, that the 10 tribes were never lost. Understand when the kingdom split, God had given some specific direct directions that most pious Jews would embrace. For instance, in Torah, in Genesis and Deuteronomy 12, we read this. Moses specified by God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God has chosen from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. God said, if you're going to worship, you can't worship any old place. you got to worship in the city of Jerusalem. So when the kingdom split into 10 northern tribes, the king said, mm, I don't want Jews to go back and support the southern kingdom. So we'll establish our own places of worship. And some of you who went with me to Israel last time, we went to that place called Dan. It was a place of idolatry. And so some of the more pious Jews in the 10 northern tribes, not wanting to be guilty of idolatry and wanting to be faithful to God, left the 10 northern tribes and came under the leadership of the southern tribes. And there are many passages that document that. But again, uh, the Assyrians carried away the 10 northern tribes and they did what they typically did. They moved all the Jewish people into one city, a city called Samaria, which was the capital of Assyria. And so a lot of the Jews intermarried with the people there in Assyria. And so in Jesus' day, there's a group of people called the Samaritans. Remember that? They're half Jewish and half Gentile. But not all the Jews intermarried. And there came a time, of course, where Babylon overthrew Assyria, and Nebuchadnezzar carried the two southern tribes to Babylon, which was the old Assyrian Empire. After 70 years, just as God had prophesied, he brought them back. My point is, is that these tribes were never lost. By the way, this was a discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Which mountain do we worship at? And Jesus said, listen, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such worshipers, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And that can only happen for you to worship in spirit and truth. First, for you to be born again. And so there's no longer a required locale where you have to uniquely worship God. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship God out on your boat this afternoon. You can worship him on the golf course. You can worship him anywhere, but of course not to the exclusion of gathering with God's people as the scriptures mandate on the first day of every week. 
And so it's no longer restricted to a locale under the blessings of the new covenant. But the fact that God does not lose things and that the 10 lost tribes were not lost is clear from the New Testament. Think your way through this. Jesus in Matthew 10 first sends the apostles to who? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, they're not lost according to Jesus, so I don't know why we think they're lost. And the book of James, in the opening verse, he writes to the 12 tribes of Israel. He assumes they're still in existence. Paul, before Agrippa, speaks of the 12 tribes. Anna in the temple, who we celebrate at this time of year. She's from one of the 10 northern tribes, the tribe of Asher. Peter, in Acts 2, speaks of all of the house of Israel. So if the 12 tribes are lost, God doesn't know anything about it. Listen, that's rooted in an anti-Semitic spirit in its very dangerous theology. Now, I'm almost done. Stay with me. Verse 5, from the tribe of Judah... 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. All the way through 6, 7, come down to verse 8. They were all sealed. 144,000 Jews. 12,000 special ambassadors from every tribe. You say, how are they one to Christ? We're not told. Maybe they all have a Damascus Road kind of experience. Maybe the two witnesses witnessed to him. We're not told. But all we know is that they are born again and they are sealed and they will preach the gospel to the whole world that it will be Israel front and center because God is not done with the Jew. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications in the form of a question. Number one, do you know that God loves you unconditionally in Christ? Do you know that? That he loves you unconditionally in Christ. That when you blow it as a Christian, he says, well, I don't love you anymore. Maybe your parents were that way, but our God is not that way. He loves you unconditionally. He made an unconditional covenant with the Jewish people. And so God said this through Moses, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Moses affirms at the end of his life, when he gathers all of Israel, that God chose you not because you were better, but because he set his affection upon you, and he did so with an everlasting love. And my friend, that's how God saved you. You were not in the business of seeking God first. You weren't reading books on apologetics. You weren't reading the Bible all by yourself. It was not you that sought God first. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks God. God loved you first. He first loved you. And that's why you responded. That's why you read a book on apologetics. It's not that you were so smart and said, well, I said, if there's a God out there, I want to know this God. And God worked in your heart. God initiated with you. Your salvation from beginning to end is a work of a sovereign God. And you should find rest in that because it speaks of his unconditional, unfailing love. Second, do you know that you've been sealed by God? Again, these 144,000 are sealed with a mark of ownership and a mark 
and their life in terms of protection. And by the way, this is not without precedence in the scripture. God separated Noah and his family from the great flood. God separated Lot and his two daughters from the storm of terror that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. God protected Rahab and her household from the demise of Jericho. God protects these 144,000 and he will protect the church from the great tribulation because we've not been destined for wrath. He will protect you if you have the seal of God. Do you have the seal of God in your heart today? Does the Spirit bear witness to you that you are a born-again Christian? Third and finally, have you ever come to know the Lord? Have you ever come to know the Lord? Now, I did not ask you if you know the significance of the 140,000, 144,000, or if you know the meaning of the uh, other beasts in the book of Revelation. I'm not asking you if you can identify the ten toes in Daniel's vision and what nations they stand for or who the ten kings are in the Revelation. But I am asking you, do you know Jesus Christ? If you do not know him in a personal, life-changing way, it will be too late after the rapture. You say, well, I'll get it right. When all these millions of Christians are, are gone, I'll get it right. I'll call upon Yeshua and I'll get saved then. No, you won't. We will study it. God will send a strong delusion on those who did not believe, and the scripture says they will believe a lie. If you will not respond in this age to a clear, cogent, spirit-filled presentation of the gospel, the Bible is clear. You will not respond after the church is removed. You will embrace the Antichrist. My point is, if you're going to get saved, you should get saved today. Because today is the day of salvation. And if you keep putting God off, one, the rapture could happen, and then it will be forever too late. But if you keep putting God off and the rapture doesn't happen in your lifetime, every time you say no to God, your heart gets a little harder. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, it won't be softer and more pliable to call upon Jesus. And there will come a time when the final callus is put on your heart, just as Jesus said in John 12, they could not believe because they would not believe. There's not always hope as long as there is breath. Because a person can cross the invisible line known to God only where they will not believe because they would not believe. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Holy Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that you are a faithful God, that you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for all of the promises that you made to Israel. Thank you that a day will come when the Jewish people as a nation will turn and confess Jesus. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, as the prophet said, and believe on him for salvation. We await that day, but thank you that between now and that time, you have called us as your people to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in the week that is before us, to look around us and the people we will meet and see even today, and to look at them the way you see them, either forever destined to heaven or forever lost if they die without Christ. Help us to have compassion as someone had compassion on us. 
I pray today for someone who is here who's unsure whether or not the seal of God is in their life, whether the Spirit truly bears witness that they are a child of God. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Help someone do that wherever they may be listening. And we ask it to the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled Israel Front and Center, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV19. And if you can help support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift or by becoming a regular Search the Scriptures supporter, call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button at searchthescriptures.org or on the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow we begin a look at the mysterious multitude. Join us then in our study of Revelation as we search the Scriptures. <music>